This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Tuesday, August 16th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The burning of Notre Dame is horrific. It is sad. But so is the pronunciation of Notre Dame. Look, I'm not saying you gotta go crazy and say Notre Dame is burning in Paris. But can we cool it with the Notre Dame? (laughs) Just as Notre Dame literally does cool. Like, I get that we're not going to go to brunch and start calling the hollandaise sauce the hollandaise. And if we do that, then what comes next, right? You know what I'm saying? Après moi le deluge. But I work with a committed francophone. Guess which one? Between Daniel Schrader and Pierre Biennemé. And it just has to appall the guy and anyone with a semblance of respect for the language of French to hear so many Americans talking about Notre Dame. It's like a perfectly good phrase in a lovely language filtered through Indiana, of all places. Notre Dame, the fightin' Irish. Well, at least you could have called them the, 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 the galled Gauls, the fightin' French. I mean, it all applies. I do think... So since you're wondering, what about, you like Mike, are you one of these guys who likes to pronounce every word in its own language? No, it gets a little crazy, and I find it a little off-putting, and sometimes you hear newscasters or politicians engaging in this, but it usually winds up sounding something like, in the triangle countries of Honduras, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, they might hire a coyote to cross the southern border into Mexico. Because I find linguistically for an English speaker, once you cross that border into Mexico, you also cross a line from authentic pronunciation to just being difficult. Most Americans do not want to say Mexico, even as they're saying Honduras. But Notre Dame? It's just lame. Or should I say lam when it comes to Notre Dame? Just a little respect for this great cultural structure Call it Notre Dame, and maybe to help out the French, when you do go to brunch, fine. You can still order the hollandaise, but maybe you want to order it, not, not, not on a crepe, but maybe on a crepe. Cut the crap. Go with crap. On the show today, I play referee and ride to the defense of the most powerful journalistic institution in America because they need my help. The New York Times, yeah, I know they do their own daily news podcast, but... You know, they got to spend that time on other things. So right here, right now, I got the New York Times back. You'll thank me later, Barbaro. But first, two of Politico's most plugged-in reporters have collaborated on a book that covers Congress in the age of Trump, against the backdrop of Trump, shot through with Trump, hard by the river Trump. Playbooks Anna Palmer is here. She is one of the co-authors, co-equal authors, we should say, of the book, The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress in the Future, of Trump's America. The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America, is the new book out by the reporting team from Politico of Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer. They write the Politico playbook, which I'm going to say is the most influential bi-daily newsletter in Washington today. Is that too many qualifiers? I don't know. (laughs) 
If you say, well, who could read a bi-daily newsletter, then just read this book, which tells you the story of what Trump is doing to America through our houses of Congress. Anna Palmer is here. Thanks for doing this, Anna. Thanks for having me. So I know that with Trump in the title, you're going to sell more books. And I was a little, I'm not going to say skeptical. I know that. And people are interested in Trump. But then I also said, you know, the legislative branch, it is listed first in the Constitution, co-equal and all that. But man, is Trump shot through this book. Man, is everything that's going on Trump-influenced. And I was wondering if it, that, that is more so than had you looked uh, with other presidents in their first two years. I think that's probably true. I, I, we decided to write this book really coming because of Trump. He was a change candidate in a change election who promised to change the way Washington works. Uh, Jake and I have spent basically our whole careers reporting on Congress, and I did a lot of money in politics reporting before that, but really, you know, day in and day out on Capitol Hill talking to members of Congress. And so when you have a, a figure who wants to break the way things are done in an institution that lives and dies by the way things have always been done, we knew that it was going to be a really textured, interesting story. Yeah. How much uh, has Trump or the people who advise him been surprised with just how tough it has been to deal with Congress? I, I know the rhetoric is one thing and the reality is probably not as extreme as, you know, I'm going to strike a deal. I, I would assume I'm going to strike a deal and they're going to love me and it's going to be great and everything we pass is going to be better health care than you can imagine. OK, that's the rhetoric. The reality was somewhere a little less than that. Uh, in his mind. But ha as it's played out, it's been you know somewhat of a shambles from your reporting and my assessment. So how much did that surprise Trump and those in his milieu? I, I think it definitely surprised them. I think they came into Washington after, you know, winning a historic election and nobody saw it. And they thought that, you know, they could, not, you know, kind of they were going to break Washington just like they had, you know, changed the world and changed the country with his election. And they had a lot of naivete and a lot of bravado. And I think, you know, in the book we say that members of Congress, you know, often say, I was here before him, I'm going to be here after him. And that is really the mantra that you see throughout this book, where they came in thinking they were going to get all these things done, it was going to be healthcare, it was going to be tax reform, it was going to be, you know, infrastructure. And besides tax reform, Republicans, even though they controlled the White House, the House and the Senate, they didn't get basically anything else done. And they just kind of lurched from crisis to crisis to crisis. Who within the administration was the expert was in charge of being the liaison with Congress? Now it's Mick Mulvaney, a member of Congress. Hey, I know how this works. I think Gary Cohen was tasked with that on some matters. Like, so who is the person who was supposed to have Trump's ear explaining Congress? I think there's several people. I mean, I think yeah. what the, one of the things that we talk a lot about is Jared Kushner, a business guy who comes to Washington and really thinks he's going to get a ton of stuff done. And then, you know, I think a lot of members of Congress see him as a total neophyte. And, you know, besides— well, Only because, in fact, he is. I mean, he doesn't know the institution. He's never <laughs> right. even lived in the city. Right. And so I think there were people like that that, you know, were taking on different issues that I think have been pretty unsuccessful because they either don't understand Washington or they certainly don't have the relationships. I think Gary Cohn did get a lot of respect, particularly on tax reform with members uh, of Congress, with particularly on the Senate side, whereas Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, definitely didn't get that respect. Yeah, it just seems to me that 
he needs someone who is going to tell him, well, actually, Mr. President, this is how it works. And you might not like it, but this is how it doesn't work. And Mulvaney is positioned to do that. Maybe Mark Meadows or a member of the Freedom Caucus earned some credibility along the way. But not having that, especially if you've never lived in Washington and don't know anything about Washington. And uh, Mike Pence hasn't been there for years. I mean... I don't understand how they thought that they were going to, you know, railroad or get anything done with Congress. So, yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I think the problem with Mick Mulvaney as in the way that you describe him is when he was in Congress, he was part of the faction of Congress, the Freedom Caucus kind of members who basically just tried to stop things. So he doesn't have a real right. history of, you know, getting consensus, building consensus and working across the aisle and having the respect of the Democrats. So I think that that fundamentally is is going to be very tough for Trump to get advice from him on, on things like that. And also the way he's basically doing the job is to let Trump be Trump. And we've seen over the past you know, m- month or two how that's gone. Yeah, and it seems that Meadows and Jordan, the two other members of the Freedom Caucus, which have what, like a couple dozen members? Although it's weird, you can't even get a published list. It's like some Hogwarts thing. Anyway, (laughs) uh, it seems like uh, those two guys are his favorite guys in Congress. So he keeps pulling from the same ranks of like the the select group of the select group of, you know, the minority of the majority who aren't really the do something caucus. Well, I also think it's it's tough to that extent because now that Republicans lost the House, the, the, I mean, Jim Jordan and, and Mark Meadows have no power, right? When you're in the minority, you don't control the schedule. You don't control what bills are going to come up. You don't control anything. And so if you're looking to them when you're dealing with the paradigm of Nancy Pelosi in power, that's not going to work very well. And I think one of the things we sat down with the president for this book and he said he wasn't even that upset that Republicans had had lost the majority, which was pretty stunning. But he said, well, maybe, you know, maybe it'd be better for him that Republicans were 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 too, too you know, far to the right and too pure on their and if Democrats brought him bills, he would pass it. But he did say to us, it, it's either gonna be two ways, if there's investigations or we can get something done, but I'm not gonna do both those things. And clearly Democrats are going down the investigations route. Yeah, he clearly laid that out in that uh, famous post-midterms uh, press conference where he talked about, look, it might even be better if Democrats are in charge. But that, to me, said this is a person without a clear, I mean, this is not news, person without a clear political agenda. Because a person with a clear political agenda would say, okay, our agenda just got pushed back. If you're a transactional person, you say, oh, new opportunity, new set of uh, circumstances to deal with. Maybe I can wheel and deal. Yeah, I mean, I think we write in the book, we describe Trump as being an ideological black hole because he doesn't come into Washington or, or in, in any of these policy fights with, you know, a strong orthodoxy about what, you know, he's been laying the groundwork on as almost every single member of Congress has, and whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. So in some ways, that allows him to be flexible, uh, where a lot of, you know, other members of Congress or other leader, political leaders wouldn't be. And we really saw that in the immigration debate when he had all the members of Congress around him. And Senator Dianne Feinstein, very liberal from California on immigration, starts kind of explaining what she thinks. And Trump says, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then all of a sudden you have Kevin McCarthy have to kind of pull him back and be like, oh, I don't really know if that's exactly what you were going to be doing here. I think the personalities that you bring to the fore are fascinating, yet I've always thought that the main way to understand Congress is not through the personalities, it's just through, it's structural. And uh, 
based on the fact that there are so many people with access to the brakes and that there is a filibuster, it's much easier to stop things. This is political science, you know. It's much easier to stop things in the way our, our Congress is constructed than it is to accomplish things. But how much do you think the actual personalities come into play? I think they matter for sure. And I think one of the things we try to do is oftentimes I think people get a caricature of who these people are. But, you know, we we know them as people. I'm not saying we're friends. We're not like going out and hanging out. But I've known a lot of these members through political highs, through political lows. You get to talking to them. You know, we traveled a ton for this book with members of Congress on the fundraising circuit and, uh, you know, campaigning. And so I think that personalities matter. I think it matters in in the sense of uh, Republicans and Democrats getting along or Nancy Pelosi being able to cut deals. You know, so uh, yes, things, the, the system is meant to stop things, not have, a, you know, things move super fast. But I do think at the end of the day, getting together and, you know, and, and people kind of hashing things out, th- things get done that way. Okay, so I'm going to cite three factors that my Democratic friends always point to as making politics unfair. And but for these factors, there'd be more uh, Democrats elected and they would say a fairer uh, Congress. One is money. Two is gerrymandering. Three is voter suppression. I could put it up four in there like right wing medium. Rank them. What, what do you think are the really most important things in keeping uh, Democrats from getting the vote they think they deserve? Oh, uh, I don't know if I'd put it that way. So I would say I, I think money in politics is is one of the the most corrosive parts of the whole system in terms of the minute you're elected, you're you know on the phone trying to fundraise and dark money, and I, I think that is something that has completely changed in my lifetime uh, and in my in my coverage. I think what I just laid out was the case for you know why gerrymandering, and I think a lot of the Republicans who, if you put them on true serum, who were involved in changing those those uh, districts would say it was not actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. And voter suppression, I, I don't, I've, I've not covered that a ton. I, you know, I mean, I know there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot of talk about it. And I think, you know, it's something that Democrats focus on a lot. Okay. What do you think, do you, this, I don't know if there's lightning round, but I just have a bunch of random questions. Do you think it's possible that there'll be a left-wing version of the Freedom Caucus, you know, the squad, these four new uh, representatives, plus a bunch of other socialist Democrats to uh, cause problems for Nancy and the left? I I think we're starting to see it. I'm sure they would not agree with that they are going to become the Freedom Caucus. But I think you're starting to see them wield power, certainly Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, in terms of the, the latest funding uh, debate, in terms of raising the, the budget caps, and I, you know, which is pretty wonky. But I, I also think in terms of where the policy is, right? The Green New Deal, like no one's, you know, Nancy Pelosi's not agreeing to it, but it's gotten the attention of a lot of members and certainly on the 2020 circuit as well as Medicare for All. Is Mitch McConnell more open to Democratic input than Harry Reid was? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Mitch McConnell is Mitch McConnell. And I, we document this in the book where I think he wants to win and he looks at what's possible. I think, you know, I don't know that they would like me saying this, but I think Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are very similar characters. I think they are two people who decide where they're going to go and then they are steadfast in it and they aren't going to be subject to the winds and the whims of the political, you know, ideologues on Fox News and, and, and you know, MSNBC. Uh, just a couple more. Did you ever think, so you've been covering Congress since when, 2004? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever think that you would see a freshman with the kind of uh, juice and influence that AOC has had? No, but it's a different era. 
I, I mean, I think you can't underscore the use of Twitter and social media and the ability to disseminate um, information on their own in a way that even five years ago, people didn't have. And also, I've interviewed, and I've, I, I in a, another day job I have, I, I run our Women Rule um, editorial program. And so I've interviewed a lot of these women freshmen. And I do think, I think there's just a real authenticity, you know, difference in, in a, wanting to be real that I have never seen in lawmakers before, both either male or, or female. And lastly, you're from North Dakota, right? I am. Yeah, so you have more tenure in the Congress than any of the members of North Dakota's <laughs> delegation. Am I right about that? Uh, yes, that's probably right. Yeah, I think uh, Senator Hoven goes back about seven or eight years, yeah. and then Kramer and Armstrong were just elected. So Kevin Kramer's from my you? hometown. Really? Yes. I, that doesn't surprise me. Do they come to you for advice? I mean, North Dakota is not a big place. You must have, like, friends in, <laughs> or family members in common. Uh, no, I don't think anybody's, <laughs> none of them have asked me for my advice, but, um, yes, I mean, I know, I knew Kevin Kramer's parents growing up in a very small town in North Dakota. So, you know, yeah, the North Dakotans got to stick together. Yes. <laughs> Has being from North Dakota gotten you anything or hurt you at all in your reporting career? No, you know, I always, my, my mom's actually in town. She came uh, for the book par- book party, but I I never had as much hometown pride until I moved here because no one had been to North Dakota. So you have, you, you inadvertently become an ambassador of the state and have a, you know, you have to have, you know, some good facts and different things to, I always try to get people to come uh, to Fargo to check it out. Wait, Fargo's your hometown? No, no, no. I'm from a little town called Kindred. Kindred. Where kindness is, is a way of life. That's the motto. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that you'd like that one. Yes, yes. Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman are not only kindred spirits, they're co-reporters and co-authors of the book, The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America. Anna Palmer, thank you so much for your time and putting up with my rapid fire, not extremely focused, opinion-based questioning. Thank you. I appreciate it. Buy The Hill to Die On. (laughs) Yes, this is the implication of this entire endeavor. (laughs) Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. the spiel. Today, an internecine dem-on-dem violence. Actually, Democrat-on-Democrat violence isn't quite right as a phrase. It's more accurately accused leftist media covering avowed leftist candidates spat with the one self-identifying Democrat in this whole phrase. Here's the backstory. Bernie Sanders was upset that the think tank Center for American Progress was attacking him which was stupid, as I have said before, in this way, by suggesting that Bernie has changed his tune since he became a rich man. So they tweeted this out under their media-facing brand, Think Progress. I talked about this on the show, trying to make the point that Bernie says millionaire less these days. Well, millionaires and billionaires. For billionaires and millionaires. For millionaires and billionaires. So Bernie said, call off your dogs. It's a dumb point, and I agree. You are correct, Senator. The Center for American Progress said, hey, that's think progress. They're independent. They get to make their own choices. They're free to say what they like. Remember that. Free. Independent. Those are virtues that the Center for American Progress holds, at least when it's an argument that gets you off the hook. The New York Times was covering this story. 
I mean, you do have the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination of everyone who's actually declared, right? And he is feuding with an extremely important think tank within the Democratic establishment. I'd say that's very much the definition of news. And so what they did is they told us a little bit about the players involved. The Center for American Progress is helmed by Neera Tandon, and she has feuded with Bernie Sanders' campaign manager back when she wasn't yet with the Center for American Progress, but he was, or actually, he was with the website Think Progress. You know, I know, it's all complicated. Anyway, here's how it goes. In 2008, Bernie's current campaign director, who was then with Think Progress, asked a question to Hillary Clinton that Neera Tandon, who was then a top Clinton aide, objected to. And Neera Tandon punched him, or maybe, as she puts it, shoved him. It really doesn't matter because she's the victim of sexism. Oh, we'll get there. In documenting the bad blood between Team Tandon and Team Bernie, the New York Times did what reporters should do. They contacted people close to the central figures in their story. And Maya Tandon, Nira's mother, offered this quote. She's not going to let anyone rule over her. And she has loyalty to Hillary because Hillary is the one who made her. She also said these Bernie brothers are attacking her all the time, but she lets them have it too, Maya Tandon said. She says Sanders got a pass in 2016, but he's not getting a pass this time. As a reader, what did I think of that quote? I think it does what good quotes and profiles of people I'm interested in do. It fleshes those people out. Or in a parallel world where the most important things are to take umbrage and to foster hurt, that quote, even the soliciting of that quote and the eliciting of that quote is pure affront. Here's how the people aligned with Neera Tandon reacted on Twitter. Brian Fallon, who was Hillary Clinton's press secretary in 2016 and a big Neera Tandon ally, came to her defense saying, the sandbagging of Neera Tandon's mother seems like a good subject for the New York Times ombudsman. And the New York Times story on Neera Tandon should have never brought her mom into it. And whether you agree with Neera's views or not, her aggressiveness is one of her biggest strengths and would be lionized if she were a man. Well, guess who made that point to us readers? Maya Tandon did. She talked about the aggressiveness in positive terms, as opposed to she hits people who ask questions she doesn't like. Sandbagging? That was the word used, sandbagging? It's called asking a person for comment. That's sort of a, if not the, tenant of journalism. Neera Tandon herself retweeted a few people coming to her defense, like the host of the Woke As Fuck show on Sirius Satellite Radio, saying, really, New York Times? You dig up some BS on Neera Tandon via her mother because she is assertive and a leader. Neera Tandon also retweeted Rosa Brooks, saying, what the fuck, New York Times? Would you run an article about a male political leader's relationship with a rival political campaign that relied mainly on quotes from his mom? And would it be newsworthy for a male leader to be viewed as aggressive? Neera Tandon said, good summary. Well, it didn't rely mainly on quotes from the mom. And as far as the newsworthiness of her being viewed as aggressive, I gotta tell you, she should be happy if readers came out of that thinking she was aggressive. 
because readers, this reader, went into it thinking, oh, she might be not aggressive, but abusive. And the reason that one of the reasons why I concluded maybe more aggressive than abusive is that her mother was allowed to contextualize her feisty daughter. Assertive was a pretty kind reading of an act that would be damning. And if you want to interrogate the sexism, when you have one figure punching or shoving another figure, and there's a man and a woman involved, if you want to claim sexism by what would happen if the roles were reversed, well, think about that. What if a man pushed or shoved a woman? I think that might be a totally different issue, but it's not because of sexism. I don't know. Oh, and then the last part, can you imagine an outlet interviewing a public figure's mother? Yeah, I can. It happens quite a bit. I can imagine a good journalist calling someone who knows the subject they're profiling really well. Like when Connie Chung interviewed Newt Gingrich's mom. Mrs. Gingrich, what is what has uh, Newt told you about President Clinton? Nothing. And I can't tell you what he said about Hillary. You can't? I can't. Why don't you just whisper it to me, just between you and me? She's a bitch. Real, that's the only thing he ever said about her. But I think they had some meeting, you know, and she takes over. Of course, there was blowback to that infamous interview. Of course, Newt Gingrich didn't like it. And of course, we don't care because it's not his decision what we as the public get from journalists. If you live in a democracy with a free press, you've got to let the press be free, even if you don't like the outcome. Even if you are a 78-year-old adult of sound mind and body who, when someone calls you and identifies themselves as a reporter for the New York Times, doesn't think that your quotes might wind up in the New York Times. Yes, that can happen. I suppose it's unfortunate but I, as a reader, am actually edified. You know, short of using the phrase fake news, Neera Tandon and her allies use some of the same tactics that they're constantly decrying when the president resorts to them. The implication that the dishonest New York Times is bad at journalism. They were doing their job. And you, by criticizing it, are really diminishing your standing to criticize the president for flying in the face of press values. You don't like it because it reflected poorly on your narrative. And by the way, as a reader with no real skin in the fight, I've got to say my biggest takeaway from it is that you're playing the victim a little too much. I mean, Neera Tandon tweeted out her mom's Facebook quote. As a 78-year-old immigrant, oh, so in other words, a year older than Bernie. Maybe that's the long play here portraying 78 or 77-year-olds as not being savvy enough to deal with people who call and say, I'm a reporter for the New York Times. Can I talk to you a little bit? Anyway, as a 78-year-old immigrant, I am so proud of my daughter for succeeding, making life better for so many people, and helping bring health care to millions. For the first time in my life, a reporter contacted me out of nowhere and said she wanted to talk to me for what I thought was a nice story about Nira. Turns out it wasn't nice. I didn't understand my words would be used in the story, and once I understood they could be, I called her back to clarify that. Only then did she tell me my words were, quote, on the record, a term I've never heard before. I feel very misled, and it's shameful the New York Times would use my words to hurt my daughter. Your feelings of being misled, ma'am, I'm sorry to say, are illegitimate. Your daughter's feelings of umbrage are illegitimate. Her supporters' charge of sexism is illegitimate. The only thing that's legitimate is the journalism.
That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schroeder. TJ Raphael never wanted to be the senior producer of Just Podcast. Do you know what her dream was? Well, we asked Newt Gingrich's mother. Creator of Resume. The gist, my mom, I'm sure, would say very nice things about me in an interview. In fact, her Twitter account, Mike Pesca's mother, is full of fine, on-the-record sentiments about her son. And you know, she gave me the greatest gift of all, not saddling me with an amphibian nickname. Oomperu de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.